evidence and answers. Nations rise and nations eventually fall. America stands at a critical time in her history. Will she continue to remain strong and free? Or will she meet her demise? Which direction are we headed? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today, we are listening to another one of the exciting messages taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around this nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God?, and featured noted Christian scholars, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Without delay, let's listen as Dr. Richard Land raises issues of concern, but also reasons for hope in the revival of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Richard Land. Now, if you'll take your workbooks, if you have your workbooks, if you'll turn to page 23 in your workbook, you'll see an outline. Now, it'll help me manage my time if you can tell me how many of you heard my sermon last night. Would you raise your hands? Okay, that helps a lot. Thank you. Then you heard me read from Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God calls upon his people to make a choice between blessing and cursing, between life and death. And God calls every nation and every generation to make that choice. We can choose God's way, which is the pathway of blessing, Or we can choose our own way, which in effect is the devil's way, and it is the pathway of judgment and destruction. And one of the greatest lies of the devil, it may be the greatest lie of the devil, is to convince people that God is a grandfather. Now, you know grandfathers. They spoil. They don't reprimand. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that God is a grandfather. It says he's a father. Now, watching my parents become grandparents was a revelation. I felt like asking my parents for identification. Who are you and what have you done with my parents? When my oldest daughter was about five, she began to express an artistic bent by using her 64-color Crayola box to create free-form, rather Picasso-esque murals on the walls of our home. I explained to her that this was unacceptable behavior and that if she did it again, there would be serious repercussions. And my wife did what she did with most of the things I said to my children until they were about 12. She translated it and said, honey, that means you're going to get a spanking. So she waited until my parents came to visit. And the next morning, lo and behold, at five-year-old height, all the way down the hallway, was this multicolored, free-form, Crayola-inspired mural. So I took Jennifer into the bathroom and gave her three swats with a plastic ruler came out into the hallway and encountered my mother in tears, a woman who broke a hairbrush on me. (laughs) And I said, where's dad? She said, well, he's in the backyard. He couldn't stand it. (laughs) Now, when I was 11, 
I was expelled from Sunday school. Now, in my own defense, I want to say that if I had been paying enough attention to know that they were praying, I would have waited till after they finished their prayer before I popped the balloon. <laughs> Nevertheless, they threw me out. So I'm standing out in the hallway waiting for Sunday school to end and the worship service to begin. And the superintendent of Sunday school walks by and says, boy, what are you doing out here? And I said, well, daddy, they threw me out. Well, he took me in the bathroom, gave me a whipping with a belt, thought about it during church, got worked up all over again, gave me another whipping with a belt when we got home. But when his granddaughter colored on the wall, I think he was trying to work up the courage to ask if they could cut out the sheetrock and take it home and have it framed. God is not a grandfather. God is a father. And he will chastise those that are his children. As the book of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 makes very clear. So God has laid out for us the path of blessing. He's laid out for us the path of cursing. And then he gives us this promise that we have in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, as I said last night, this is a conditional promise. If we do certain things... God will respond in a certain way. If we don't, he won't. We must pray and seek his face and acknowledge our humility before him that our problems are God-sized problems and only God can solve them. And then we must turn from our wicked ways. Then he will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And when enough of Christians do this, then he will heal our land. He will give us a heal-the-land kind of blessing. And I want to concentrate on that tonight. Now, we don't get right with God collectively. Remember I said last night, Christianity is first and foremost a personal relationship. We get right with God individually. If we're going to invoke the blessing, it is going to be individual Christians who are turning back to God as the chief focus of their lives and seeking his will for their lives. Now, my favorite passage of Scripture, got some strong competitors, but my favorite passage of Scripture is found in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. And uh, it's my favorite book in the Bible. My mind works this way. I, I've asked myself now, if I could only take three books of the Bible with me to a desert island, what would those three books be? Well, number one would be the book of Romans. Uh, back when I was an intermediate, those of you who can remember what an intermediate was, uh, in Southern Baptist life, that was somebody between 13 and 16. Back when I was an intermediate, we had a Bible study book called The Gospel According to Paul. And it was a Bible study on the book of Romans. Every major doctrine of the Christian faith is dealt with in the book of Romans. My second book would be the Gospel of John. And my third would be the book of Hebrews, which I've preached through now twice, verse by verse. It took me 14 months the last time I did it. And it really is the Holy Spirit's commentary on the Old Testament. If you've got the book of Hebrews, you've got the 
spiritual truths of the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit's commentary on them. But in every one of Paul's books, there is a transition passage. It's called, sometimes called the hinge passage, where he swings from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from doctrine to practice. You know, Paul never left us in any doubt about what our response was supposed to be to the teaching that God gave him to give to us. And a very short outline of the book of Romans would be, you have the prologue, and then you have the downward spiral of sin in Romans 1. The most impressive thing about sin is its ability to to beget ever greater sin and ever greater depravity. And you see that downward spiral before us in Romans 1, culminating in sexual activity that is declared to be unnatural. Even their females did leave the natural use and burn in their lust one towards another. And, and without natural affection, it says in the King James, that's the word for mother love in the Greek language, storge. It means mothers who don't even love their own children. Well, how else do you explain 56 million abortions than the downward spiral of sin leading to mothers who don't even love their own children. And then you have Romans 3, which makes it very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you go through chapter 4 and chapter 5, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this incredibly irrefutable argument that if God died for us while we were sinners, how much more will he do for us now that we are his children? Romans 6, the great chapter of identification. Romans 7, chapter of defeat in the flesh, either as a Christian or as a non-Christian. Paul says, that which I don't want to do, I do. That which I want to do, I do not. Who shall free me from this body of death? You see, one of the great lies the devil teaches us is that we can be our own God. We can do our own thing. We can decide what we want to do. We shouldn't let God tell us what to do. Well, we're not going to do what we want to do. We're going to do what the devil wants us to do. I mean, how many New Year's resolutions do you keep? That which we don't want to do, we do. That which we want to do, we do not. Who shall free me from this body of death? We're either going to do what God wants us to do, or we're going to end up doing what the devil wants us to do, which is destructive, which is causes pain and misery to all of those around us because the devil hates us with a malevolence and a malignity that is beyond our comprehension. Then you have chapter 8, which is the great chapter of victory. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned one time in the seventh chapter. The Holy Spirit's mentioned at least 15, 16 times in the eighth chapter. Instead of who shall free me from this body of death, now it's, my goodness, we have the Holy Spirit that walks alongside us, praying with us, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, and that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, and all things are being worked together for the good of those that love God, and are the call according to his purpose. And then we have a parenthesis in chapters 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul anticipates the objections of the Jews to the gospel of grace being preached to the Gentiles and answers them. And then we come to the hinge passage, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy 
acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I want to draw your attention to some detail to this passage because this is the key. If we are believers, and it's a big if, I'm making an assumption that you have come to the place in your life where you understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he came and died on the cross, died a cross kind of death because he loved you. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God was made of no reputation and came to this earth and was found in fashion as a man and was obedient even to a cross kind of death so that God gave him a name that is above every name. Isn't that interesting? The name that is above every name is not King of Kings. It's not Lord of Lords. It's Jesus, his human name. The name of sacrifice, where he was the great high priest who sacrificed himself on the cross one time that we might have life everlasting. I'm assuming that that has happened to you. If you are a believer, then what Paul is saying is, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, points back to the first 11 chapters, because of the great doctrines of grace in the gospel, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now that means you say, Lord, here I am. This word present is an imperative. It's like a military command. Lord, here I am. I'm presenting myself. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I'm ready to go where you want me to go. I'm ready to be what you want me to be. You sign the check and you let God fill in the amount. You sign your autobiography and you let God write the chapters. That's what it means. And then when you do it, you shouldn't pat yourself on the back. That is what you're supposed to do. It's your reasonable service. And then he says, be not conformed to this world. Now, the word conformed there means to squash flat. Now, I'm a baby boomer. I'm a child of the television age. And I've watched probably a whole lot more television than I should have. And I'm also a night owl. And so I've watched a lot of, uh, I lost, watched a lot of Johnny Carson and now David Letterman and now the others who are on. And I remember one night, David Letterman in his younger years decided to make a sidewalk pizza. So he took the mixings of a pizza and put them out on the sidewalk and ran over it with a, with a steamroller, with a telephoto lens. And now, let me tell you, it was squashed flat. I mean, that tomato was sort of ground into the cement. That's what this word means. Don't let the world squeeze you and squash you into its mold. But instead, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed is the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. Now, you know what a metamorphosis is. That's when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Now, when I was a young boy, I came and asked my mother if I could borrow the flour sifter. Now, not being wise yet in the ways of boys, since I was the oldest, she gave it to me without further inquiry. When I brought it back to her, she said, honey, what have you been doing with this? I said, well, I've been sifting caterpillars. You know, she gave me that flour sifter. But I'm here to tell you, you have no idea the miracle that takes place when a caterpillar is turned into a butterfly until you have sifted caterpillars in a flower sifter. Ugh. There are colors that come out that are un indescribable and unimaginable. 
But here's the interesting thing. This be ye transformed is a passive imperative. Be still and let God do it. We can't transform ourselves. I mean, you know, you've ever seen an apple tree sort of sit around and go, then out pops an apple? No. Apple trees produce apples. That's their nature. When we are filled with the Spirit and we're being guided by God's Spirit, we naturally produce spiritual fruit. When we're in the flesh, we produce fleshly fruit. And we cannot rededicate ourselves to try harder. The flesh will always lose. It says, be ye transformed. Let the Holy Spirit transform you. Let the Holy Spirit put you through a metamorphosis. From an earthbound caterpillar to a butterfly that can soar into the heavens. And by the renewing of your mind. The transformation of your mind. And your mind becomes transformed and you then prove. That means put it to the test and discover that it's true. Prove means you say, yes, Lord, I'm going to put it to the test. And you can believe that a chair will hold you. You, don't be, you, can, you can believe that with your mind, but you don't really believe it until you sit in the chair. My son, when he was younger, climbed up higher in a tree than he was comfortable, higher in a tree than I could climb because I weighed more than he did, and he was unhappy. He wanted out of that tree, and it was higher than a ladder could reach. So finally, I stood at the bottom of the tree, and I said, Son, you're going to have to jump. He was about five. I said, you're going to have to jump. I will catch you. And he said, I'm afraid. I don't believe you. I said, son, I'm telling you, I will catch you. Well, he really believed me when he let go of that tree. And I did catch him. That's when he really believed. So when we let the Holy Spirit put our mind through a metamorphosis, we prove. The word prove there puts it to the test and discovers that it's true. That God's will for your life is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, I want you to notice that it's God's will for your life. Remember last night I said God never created a nobody? Everybody is a somebody to God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created unto good works, that God hath before ordained that we should walk therein. Let me unpack that, King James. We're saved by grace through faith, and he gives us saving faith. And then we're saved in order to understand why it is that God created us, and to walk in the pathway that God has for each one of us, the good works that God hath before ordained. It's like a set of footprints out into the future, and there's a different pathway for each person. And when you let the Holy Spirit begin to transform your mind, you discover that God's will for your life is good. That means it's the source of joy. God's will, and, and by the way, nobody can fulfill God's will for your life as well as you can. Each one of us is unique. And God has a unique plan and purpose for our lives. And for the young people that are here, let me say to you, God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. You need to find out what it is. And no one can do as good a job of being the you that God created you to be as you can. And for those of us who are older, you may have gotten off that path. 
All I can say to you is that you may, God may be disappointed with where you are tonight, but God's not surprised. And God has a plan and a purpose from where you are right now for the rest of your life. That is good. It's the source of joy. Now, when I was pastor of a church in England while I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, I had a couple come to me who wanted to get married, and I always require six counseling sessions. I don't marry anybody that doesn't do six counseling sessions. That's a good way to help some, some bad marriages not happen. It's also a good way to prevent a lot of problems before they get married. And after the second session, I told this couple that I could not marry them, that it would be, I would be negligent before God if I married them, that they had no business getting married, and I pleaded with them and begged them not to get married. Well, they got married anyway. Well, six months later, the bride came to see me, and she said, Dr. Lynn, you were right. I shouldn't have married my husband, but now I've found the person that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with, and he's going to leave his wife, and I'm going to leave my husband, and we're going to get married. What do you think about that? Now, I was going to tell her anyway, but she did ask, and I said, I said, honey, you think God wants you to be sad? You think God wants you to be depressed? I said, now, who do you think knows more about what's going to make you happy? The God of the universe or you? The God who made you or you? And I then told her that we don't break God's laws. They break us if we disobey them. And then it was not God's will for her to leave the husband that she now had and for her paramour to leave his wife and that if they started off in that direction, they should expect to get judged by God and judged rather severely. God's will for our lives is the source of joy. And she started to say, I just want to be happy. I said, well, who do you think knows more about what's going to make you happy? The God of the universe or you? When you put it that way, it's sort of a dumb question. God's will for our lives is the source of joy. It's good. And it's acceptable. Now, the word acceptable there, a good translation into English would be tailor-made. God's will for your life is tailor-made. It's made just for you. It fits you. It's not made for anybody else. When I, I'll never forget the first tailor-made suit that I got. It was part of a love offering for a youth revival that I did many, many, many years ago. Uh, I've been preaching now for 52 years. I started preaching when I was 16. And I'll save you the arithmetic. I'm 68. I remember when I got this tailor-made suit. I mean, I'd never had a suit fit me like that. I mean, at the time, now this was a long time ago, I thought I was a 42 long, <laughs> alas. And I discovered that I had one arm that was a little bit longer than the other one, and I discovered that I was long-waisted and short-legged, that when I sit down, I tower over people, and when I stand up, I don't get much taller. And yet, when I was wearing that suit, I looked good. I mean, I looked better than I'd ever looked in a suit, because that suit was not an off-the-rack sort of suit. It was a suit made for me. God's will for your life is tailor-made. It is the source of joy, and it's tailor-made, and it's perfect. Now, the word perfect there is the word teleos. It means complete. There's not anything that you need in your life 
that is not in God's will for your life. Now, I didn't say that everything you want is in God's will for your life because you can want stuff that's not good for you. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you've enjoyed part one of Dr. Richard Land's study entitled America at the Crossroads. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on our homepage. Join us here next time for part two of this exciting study right here with Dr. Pat Zucrand.